One more time, my name is Andrew, and we're going to uh, jump into some teaching. Every week, we open up the Bible, which for many of you, if you're brand new to church, may feel incredibly foreign, may feel awkward and odd. Uh, and as of all the, the sort of prefaces and preambles I give to why we open the Word, why the Scripture we believe is authoritative, uh, what we believe about the nature of it and how it came together, something that I found helpful to explain, especially if you're here, maybe someone dragged you here this morning, uh, maybe you're someone who just has a lot of doubt. Maybe you've done just enough reading uh, to know that some people view parts of the Scripture uh, as being oppressive, uh, as being things that are just antiquated. Haven't we progressed past this? Uh, I, I, of all the things, I can't get into all of that right now, but I'll say this. Uh, for most folks, uh, statistically, most folks I've ever met uh, have a sense that there's something beyond their five senses. In fact, I'd argue if you're even here in the church, you have the sense of your spiritual life. There's something about love that goes beyond just the calculations in our biology. And so if you were to, to take time exploring how many people over the centuries, people who are oppressed, people who are in power, people who had lots of doubts and questions, people who had lots of assurances about what spirituality was like, about what God was like, wouldn't you want to explore a book like that? A canon, a book of people who are trying to make sense of what it meant to be dialed in to what exists beyond our five senses. To make sense of what love is and not just self-define that with every generation that comes around. A book that inspired, we just came off three weeks of this Calling All Peacemakers series. Talking about Jesus' central words of being a peacemaker and remembering Dr. King. Everything that inspired, that pushed Dr. King to do what he did, traces back to the Bible. I had someone come up to me after service last week and go, Andrew, I had no idea Martin Luther King was a pastor. I was like, how, 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 oh, cool. <laughs> the how is inside. <clears throat> no, but it's understandable. You're probably here today. I don't say that to make fun. I say that like, oh, man, it's, it's, it's funny how we want to detach unbelievable, powerful, prophetic work like that from its origin. And so wouldn't we want to explore a book that has moved so many? If you ever read Nelson Mandela's Easter sermon, I feel like I reference this once a month. It's unbelievable. You read about his mastery of making sense of the resurrection. So much of our understanding when it has been true and it has not bastardized the text. And so that's why every week we open the word. We open it because we want to explore and make sense of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And today, I am so excited to begin a new series. And it's so appropriate, I feel, coming out of a series where we spent the last three weeks talking about systemic racism, talking about loving your enemy, talking about peacemaking in like a day-to-day, minute-by-minute kind of way. That we would ask the question, because that's such an outward movement, Right? And if we're going to be people that aren't burned out activists, if we're going to be people that aren't just go and make disciples, go and tell people about Jesus, go and do the work of justice and love and peace, we have to be making sure that like Jesus, we are aware of our inner selves. We're aware of the inner journey. And so this, uh, this series is going to take us through eight weeks talking about emotional health and how we like feel better not like feel better. Like how do we learn how to feel in better ways? Better ways. And what is it about emotional maturity and spiritual maturity? What is it about those two that are related? So I want to begin just with a little survey of Jesus. I'm going to start in Matthew 26, 36. I'm looking around and realize I don't have my Bible on me. If anyone could grab a Bible from over there, that would be great. Matthew 26, 36, though. We're going to read this text first. Hey, can you stand one more time with me? That'd be great. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and took the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing. 
but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, whoever brought this up. From early on, Jesus is marked, marked by all sorts of emotions. This story is at the end of his life, if you're new to the scriptures. This is Jesus towards the end of his life, just before he's about to go to the cross, and he is contending with God, trying to make sense of the call that has been put on his life. We're going to return back to this text in a minute, but we see here he is deeply overwhelmed with sorrow. Mark 6, 30. We read the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that had been done and taught them because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So Jesus, in this story, he's tired, he's worn down. We're not sure. He may be a little stressed out. I mean, he goes away. They go away to a boat, to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot. So people recognize Jesus. He's trying to get away with his disciples. Some people recognize him, and they run to meet him as he gets into this boat. This is obviously a lake to the other side of the boat. So when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd... Remember, he just was trying to get away from the large crowd. When he landed, he said, dang it, there are people here. I am so unbelievably frustrated. No. When he landed, he saw a large crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He begins to teach them many things. Jesus is tired and worn out, and then he is moved with compassion. We see this idea of Jesus being an emotional person, Throughout the scriptures, we see it in Luke's vision of, the God, uh, of, of Jesus' story. These are different accounts, different storytellers recounting what Jesus is like. Luke 7, verse 11, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples, and a large crowd went along with him as he approached the town gate. A dead person was carried out right in the middle of a funeral procession. So, the only son of like this mother, we see who's a widow here, because the ancient uh, were a Mediterranean woman without a husband uh, and without a son, they would be destitute. So it was necessary for survival that a large crowd from the town would come and gather around them. So he sees all this. He sees this loss, and it says this in the text. His heart went out to her. His heart went out to her, and the story goes on. We read about empathy between Jesus and this woman who lost everything. Luke 10, 21. At the time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have, hidden, you have hidden these things from wise and unlearned people and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus is talking about spilling over with joy, with authentic and deep kind of joy that comes from walking with God. And so he breaks out singing. He breaks out singing. He's full and overflowing with joy. And it's not always, though, the emotional high that you might expect for those of you who are like, Jesus probably was a pretty happy guy. Luke 12, 49, just a few verses later, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. This is a way of him saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And what constraint I am under until it is completed. This is this metaphoric language. His coming death, the suffering, the suffering of the cross. And here he's talking about um, the rejection and death and torture that he knows is coming. And he's what? He's dreading it. He's dreading it. He's dreading it. You know that moment when you know what's coming? What does that produce in you? You know it's coming and you know it's not a good thing and there's no other way around it. It produces what? Fear, anxiety. You know it's coming. You know it's coming. What constraint I am under until it is completed. 
Turn over, if you would, to John's gospel. Stay with me. One more story. In John, we see vivid and graphic kind of language in Jesus' life. John 2, 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle. So he's in the temple. Just imagine he walks into Hay Street and people are selling whatever the equivalent of cattle would be. Sheep and doves. Maybe it's just cattle. People are like, hey, there's cattle in the sanctuary. It's pretty cool. And others, <laughs> it's a farmer's market. Tables, ex- people are exchanging money. And if you remember, grew up in church, you remember the flannel board. I don't remember flannel board. No, I love most of this. Most of you have like not grown up in church. I just, I love that about our church. Not that I'm like against, like I love people who have grown up in church. I'm just saying there's so many of you. I'm just so, he makes me so excited. Like sometimes I I, I can say like Christian celebrity names. Right? And and it'd be like Francis Chan. Like five. (laughs) Like, everyone else is like, uh, no, I don't know. Bono. <laughs> For those of you who knew, it's a bad and long-standing joke. I mentioned flannel boards because this is one of these stories that I'm about to tell that doesn't usually get mapped in Sunday school lessons. You ready for this one? He walks into the temple. Things are not going well. He looks around, and there's a lot of commerce. There's a lot of things happening that are not supposed to be happening in a temple. And then he makes what? He makes a dove and sets it free and everyone is just wooed by his love. He steps into the center and does yoga and people are like drawn to it. And it's just this zen moment and everybody's cool. He takes out a whip. No, no, no. It doesn't say he takes out a whip. It says he made a whip. It wasn't just Jesus was packing. He, like, created and then brought it with him. He makes a whip out of cords and drove them out of the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle. (laughs) Sheep and cattle weren't even spared. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, specifically doves. He said, get these out of here. I do not like doves. Bad. Stop stop turning. I don't know why it's so funny to me. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Stop. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Like there was a prophecy about this. When the Messiah comes, he's going to make things right. This story right here, the temple I like to imagine Jesus with angry eyes. A whip does not square with the Mr. Rogers Jesus that a lot of us grew up with. But this right here in front of us, this is a, a, a telling story of what's happening in Jesus' inner world. He is what? Say it with me. He's what? Say it with me one more time. He's what? He's angry. Just to be clear, he's angry. John eleven thirty three. I'm going to land this. This is right at a funeral for one of Jesus' closest friends, a guy named Lazarus. He's at his graveside, and for the, like, for the first time, he's been dead for a little bit, and we read, when Jesus saw her weeping, his friend weeping, and the Jews who had come along uh, with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit. He was troubled, the text says. Deeply moved and troubled in his spirit. He said, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then Jesus what? He wept. A reminder. I know this doesn't apply to everyone, but for those of us who are here who are followers of Jesus, we believe something about who Jesus is. In Colossians, it says the fullness of God, all that spirituality, the logos, the logic, the the zenness out there, the personality of God, all that, whatever God is, all of it was made known, it says in Colossians, in Jesus. We don't have to be confused for a second about what God's like. We just have to look to Jesus. That's what the scriptures tell us. And so let us be clear then that our God weeps. What do we do with that? He weeps. Jesus wept. 
Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Here we see love and friendship and loyalty because of that grief and sorrow and trauma, trauma and lament. Jesus is writhing in emotional pain. So what I'm getting to is this. Jesus is an emotional being. Jesus, I would argue, is a highly emotional being. A lot of us think of Jesus as like I Spock. And be honest with the image you may or may not have in your head of Jesus. It's like Zen master. Nothing affects him. Unflappable logic. Cold. Like, oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God is like, yes, come to me, child. Which is a comforting image for many of us, but it just is sort of like... Never... Ever told your spouse, your friend, neighbor, buddy, like, will you please just act human for a moment? Like you are not human. Stop being such a robot. I don't ever drop that one. You're such a robot. Seriously? Why do we do this? Why do we attach robot and like human? What are we differentiating there? Humans do what? They feel. In other words, we know this. As human beings, we feel. We feel, we feel, we feel. We experience all sorts of emotions and feelings, and we enjoy the good. We know what to do with all the good stuff. Joy and peace and hope and anticipation and gratitude. We know what to do with all of that, and then we push away the bad. Anxiety and depression and fear and sorrow and terror. Lament, disappointment, letdown, bitterness, betrayal, jealousy, insecurity, hate, rage, violence, all these feelings. We know what to do with the good stuff. What do we do with the good stuff? More, right? What do we do with the good stuff? Come on. Let's hang out. Stay a while. Let's keep this thing going, right? Pour a little gas on that. Fan that into flame. When the good stuff comes, we try to keep that going. Make them last as long as possible. You hang on tight. You savor the moment. And the point of this series is that a lot of us, I, I think, have a hard time understanding what do we do with the other emotions. All of us have emotional pain. Some of us, a suitcase worth. And some of us, a truckload. Can I get an amen from the truckload people? <laughs> Just trying to gauge the room. All right, some of us are like, I just got about a wallet size of emotional pain. Some of you are like scoffing at that because, yeah, you literally drove a tractor trailer truck here. <laughs> but we all have it. We all have it. Most of us have no clue how to deal with it. And when we live in a day and age where more than ever the majority of people are running away from any kind of emotional pain. So I want to set up what I think part of the, uh, some categories for us for a minute. I think there are three ways that are predominant that I see in our city and I see in our church for the way that we run from emotional pain. Three basic ways. One, if you're taking notes, is, uh, is an Eastern view, an Eastern spirituality. Uh, and and I'll, I'll pick for a moment on Buddhism. Now, there's a lot of beautiful things about Buddhism. There's a lot of things that are helpful that we see mirrored even in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's some fundamental things about Buddhism which really is less of a religion and more of just a way of life, that I see kind of affect the way many people view and think about emotional pain. And, and my primary beef really is this, is that Buddhism, aside from its take on God, is its, uh, my, my big problem besides that is its take on evil. The Buddha said this, all suffering is the byproduct of desire and attachment. All suffering is the byproduct of desire and attachment. So Jesus essentially says the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, that we feel emotional pain because of something that we care about. We care about deeply and that we desire to be attached to. But the difference between Buddha and Jesus, amongst other things, is the Buddha says that, there's, uh, that the way we deal with emotional pain is we detach from any and all desire. We, we detach so it's very, for the, for the Star Wars fans in the room, it's very like Jedi Knight-ish. Someone really liked that one. <laughs> Amen. 
Like detached, no attachment. Let's transcend and be free from desire. That's basically the mantra of how you deal with emotional pain. You detach. You detach. Two, Western spirituality. So specifically what is Christianity, something that many of us, myself, grew up part of. A Western view of Christianity, this is something I've noticed. This by no means covers everybody, but I think it's pretty dominant. So I grew up in a church um, where the undercurrent, like, kind of running through the church, is basically a worldview that says things that are true. For instance, Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty. Victory, right? The kingdom of God is here and it's coming. Anything is possible because we're part of the family of God. We're not alone anymore. There are people all around us who love us. We have God's love and God is now our Father and we have the Holy Spirit flowing through us. We can access God's presence 24-7 and whatever we face in life, we know that Jesus is coming and going to put it all back together and that allows us to live fearlessly. If you're a follower of Jesus, can you say amen to all that? It's true. So whatever is coming, if you're sad and you're down, what ends up happening though is this. You tell your emotions to Take a hike. I had someone say once when we, were, when we first started, we were doing a really hard series in Hosea. A series about sin and brokenness. And they're like, I need to go to a victory church. Okay, I know what you're saying. But that mentality is I need to go to a church where when you see those emotions, you say, no, no, no. You get out of here. The problem is if you're like me, you have emotions. That access, not this finger, not this finger, not this finger, not this finger, but the one in the middle. Anyone have emotions like that? You're like, oh, I'm going to put on a Hillsong record. I got my coffee out. She reads truth. I took a picture of it. It looks really nice. I got this air plant in there. Solid. You know, like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm praying through this. Just pray it away. It's good. Just, God's victorious. I just need to remember that. I don't have enough faith right now. If I only had enough faith, I wouldn't be sad. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And then you, like, pause for a minute. And up comes anxiety, like, <laughs> not going to do that. Some of you got really nervous. Anyone else? Anyone else feel that way? You have some emotions that don't really take to that. They're not okay with that. They keep coming up. It's basically fake it. Fake it to yourself, maybe even yourself. And that becomes sort of a default posture. And of course, there's the third way. The third way we tend to avoid emotional pain, which is secularism. So Eastern spirituality is, well, your desires are where that comes from, so try to transcend and just detach from it. A sort of hyped up, um, very like selective view of Christianity and Western spirituality is, you just got victory, don't worry about thinking about those. Just push them away, you don't have enough faith. If you trust God enough, you'll be good. God is love, you're good. And the third way is, is secularism, which is essentially like anti-spirituality, and the idea is that suffering, yeah, of course, is real, and there's really not much we can do about it. Uh, so a friend of mine, uh, his barista's tattoo is, is appropriate. Uh, he, he always talks to me about it, and the, the tattoo is essentially this. The world is S-H-I-T. That's her tattoo. The world is, is, is crap, which is basically the zeitgeist of a generation, at least in Providence, I have found. The world is crap. It's whatever. So that's how it is. And the thinking is really the only thing that you can do is distract yourself. Is distract yourself. It's really not going anywhere if I think too hard about that. That's why often we've talked about, uh, many times I know brought up this odd psychological thing called human generative death anxiety. It's basically this idea that what's really at the base of so much of the brokenness and anxiety in our world is that we're all going to die and we don't know how to deal and process that. So that one gets shoved way down. And for many of us, if you were to ask questions about, well, like, I, you know, what do you believe about when you die and about your meaning in the world? I'm just going to give something good back, and when I die, I'm going to turn into a ficus, Dane Cook reference. And, uh, and that's it. And that's it. And so what we do is we just we need to avoid it, and we find ways to avoid it, and we create narratives to avoid it. So maybe for you it's, you know, the, the standard things of avoiding. It's drugs, alcohol. Maybe it's education, getting a career or a job. 
making a ton of money. Maybe it's shopping or it's romantic relationships or it's sex or it's music or it's your band or it's a hobby or it's sports. Maybe it's social media or entertainment. Maybe it's porn, it's Netflix binging. It's the, whatever it is, it's like a mantra, emotional pain for the secularist, which is just distract yourself, distract yourself. It can be little simple things like that. It can be a cocktail of things. Oftentimes it's just different narratives that really aren't rooted in much meaning. So what's interesting is that you have Eastern spirituality, detach your emotional pain. Western, put a worship song on and fake it. And secularism is like, let's just go out to eat more and have a lot more sex. Like the common denominator between all three worldviews is that they are all what? Running away. They're all like, ah! They're running away from emotional pain, all of them. They don't know how to deal with it. They don't know how to deal with it. And these are not just alive and well out there in Providence and big bad call. Like they are alive and well here. And just to be very clear, I, I have a hard time with this sort of like pastor congregant distance sometimes. Like they are alive and well here. I'm with you in this journey trying to figure this out. As my wife and children will attest. We don't know how to deal with it. We don't know how to deal with it. Whatever it is, we don't know how to deal with the emotional pain, and so we run. But in Jesus, we see a better way. So here's the text I want to go back to, the opening text that we started with, Matthew 26, 36. If you want to turn your Bibles back to that, Matthew 26, 36. If you don't have a Bible, you're not even sure what a Bible is, just into Google, right? M-A-T, 26. First link, you'll pull it up. It's magic. Google magic, second Dane Cook reference. Then <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me today. I haven't preached in four weeks, so I'm just getting it all out. Sorry. <laughs> and Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. The context here. This is a garden, more like a park, the Mount of Olives. Right outside the gate, the city of Jerusalem. He says to them, sit there while I go and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee with him. Remember the language here is he's feeling sorrowful. He knows he's about to go to his death. So he feels sorrowful, which in the Greek is kind of an excruciating internal pain, is what the word really kind of means, fleshed out. And then the word troubled, which is basically the Greek idea of legit anxiety. He's upset. He is upset and anxious. And so when he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, to the point of death. I mean, you could imagine like a good emo song having that line in it. All right, this is melodramatic. This is epic language. You, the idea here linguistically in the Greek again is that it's crushing him. It can be translated, uh, one translation, the sorrow is crushing my life out. Jesus is right in the thick of all his emotional pain. And he says, stay here and watch with me. Peter, James, I need you. I can't be alone. I can't be alone. By the way, what does that say about community and emotional pain? What, do we, what about community does it say? What is it? Yeah, we need it. We need it. Jesus seems to need it. I can't be alone. Now, he's on the floor praying, crying out. And he prays. If it's possible, if there's any way, may this cup be taken from me. This cup be taken from me. This is a metaphoric way of talking about the coming of the cross. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will. He's mad. He's frustrated. He says, couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter to watch and pray so that you're not falling into temptation. He's frustrated. Notice Jesus does not have, like, again, some Zen moment. He does not detach. He doesn't say it really matters. It doesn't really matter if I live or die. He does not graft onto any one of these Eastern, Western, secular worldviews. doesn't pop on a worship record and start quoting a psalm, saying, God, well, I know you love me. If anyone knows that he's loved and blessed, it's Jesus here. Why is he having some problem? Nor does he say, let's go out to dinner. I need an extra glass of wine and maybe a movie later. Jesus deals with his emotions and his feelings. Jesus goes to the place of pain and he sits in all of the awkwardness and he sits in all of the discomfort and he goes right to the heart of the matter. Keep in mind that most of us in this room are disciples of Jesus. 
We're disciples of Jesus, and so we see ourselves as followers, apprentices to the way of Jesus, which means that Jesus' life is the template for how we're called to live. I know that's not everybody in the room. So for, I say that only that we need to connect the dots between not just what he said, but how he did things and how he lived. If you're here and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we can't just skip over these parts, which is what I think we're prone to do. We so often don't connect the dots between spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. Spiritual maturity and emotional maturity. So this study that we're about to go through, which is based off this book called The Emotionally Healthy Church, written by a pastor in Queens. Uh, his name is Pete Scazzaro. And it, it starts, the book starts with basically his wife telling him that, look, I'm not running away from Jesus, but, and I'm not running away from our marriage, but I am running away from our church. This is the wife of the pastor of a burgeoning, growing church in Queens. When asked why she's doing this, she goes, you are a bad pastor. Hopefully she said it slightly more kind than that, but I think it may have been like the apex of a whole lot of fights. He realizes that though he was killing it at work, though he was saying all the right things and leading all the things that he thought he was supposed to be doing, that his marriage was in crisis, that the way he was grouchy and tired and worn out and overstressed and saying yes to way too much. And so basically this book comes to this climax of saying it's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. His hypothesis is it's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And he lists a whole bunch of examples. You can be a dynamic, gifted speaker for God in public and be an unloving spouse or parent at home. You can function as a church board member and maybe even a pastor, but be unteachable, insecure, and defensive. You can memorize entire books and still be unaware of your depression and anger, even displacing it on other people. You can fast and pray half the day, uh, all week for a year's worth of spiritual dis- discipline and constantly be critical of others, justifying it as discernment. You can lead hundreds of people in Christian ministry while uh, being driven by a deep personal need to compensate for a nagging sense of failure. You can pray for deliverance when in reality you're simply avoiding conflict. I like that one. Repeating an unhealthy pattern or behavior traced back to the home in which you grew up in. He goes on to list example after example of just how he started to realize the disconnect that was happening in his life. His rebuke is that a lot of times we don't teach people how to feel and how to feel well and specifically how to navigate emotional pain. So we have all these people that on the face of things seem spiritually mature but are emotionally immature and unhealthy. So you feel example after example as I go through this book is that the active dynamic presence of the God who made everything in all of life seeping into and changing and rewiring and re-engineering and transforming every fiber of your being until you become more and more like Jesus. Like, that's what I want. And what we end up realizing is that we're not submitting our emotions. We're not actually being honest about what's really going on. Jesus doesn't just teach us how to read the Bible and to pray. He wants to reteach us of what it means to be human that your job and your sexuality and your budget and how you deal with conflict and your family of origin and your relationships, everything he wants to remake into who you actually are, into who God made you to be, to be more like Jesus. So being emotionally healthy, to clarify, does not mean that you're happy all the time. Sometimes being emotionally mature means feeling sorrow. Sometimes being emotionally mature means you're honest about grief. I've realized over the years I'm a personality that is deeply pain avoidant in general. Uh, and so it's easy for me, oh, emotionally mat- emotional maturity must mean I know how to like categorize and then push things off to the side incredibly quickly or just avoid them altogether. And that is not emotionally mature. Emotionally healthy people are the folks that are able to experience what's actually happening and being able to submit it to Jesus. So this is these three things I gave in the context of this story that I want to zoom in on. Right in front of us in the story of Jesus, being troubled, sorrowful, hurting, not knowing what to do, frustrated his disciples going before God. Three things, if you're taking notes. First thing Jesus does. Are you with me? 
First thing Jesus does is he gives God his feelings. We read in verse 38, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Glaringly honest. He's straight up. He's uncut. There's no edit. He tells God and his community how he feels. And this, my friends, is the beginning of prayer. This, my friends, is the beginning of prayer. Be honest and uncut. Last summer, we spent time in the book of Psalms. Anyone really read through the Psalms before? There's a lot in there that's great. Love is better than life. Love is better than life. Overwhelming love. You get all the, you go, you get Psalm 23, right? It's like everyone's classic. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What about the Psalms that are like, may you take my enemy's children and crack them against the rocks? Yeah, that's in there. Stuff about jackals, allowing jackals to get to the people that don't like you. Make jackals feast on my enemies. It's a classic. That's no one's life verse. <clears throat> right? May patriot, patriots feast on the eagles. You know, may... <laughs> The Psalms, the Psalms, words in the Psalms contradict Jesus' teachings. Why? They're honest. These are writers frustrated at the world, frustrated at their enemy, frustrated at God. They do not push it away. They lean in and press in. Horrible things are said in the Psalms, and it is yet a template throughout all of history of how we are to pray. Why, one writer says, why would God normally let something like that out of somebody's mouth who was inspired by God, but then say, yes, make sure that's in the Bible for the millennia? <laughs> this writer postures, well, maybe just because God is not nearly as scared of honesty as we are. There is no hiding in the Psalms. Psalm 139 has this great refrain. I want to encourage you to take with you through this whole series. Search me and know my heart. Guide me and know my anxious thoughts. Search me and know my heart. Shine a light on the dark spaces. Why do we hide from my community? Hey, how are you? Fine. Fine. I'm fine. We hide from ourselves. Scared to look underneath the surface. Prayer is a safe place to bring all that we have before God. All that we have. You tell God how you feel. So first, Jesus gives the Father his feelings. Secondly, in this story, Jesus gives God his desires. It's really interesting. He goes on to pray, If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as your will be done. Again, the cup here is a metaphor for his impending death. I don't like what's about to happen. I would like to choose option B, please. You all clear what's happening right now? I know many of you have maybe read this story before, but like just soak that in for a minute. The mystery of it. Jesus being like, I know I got a thing to do. I know that's the plan. We're in on this. Please know. Contending with God. I would like, he gives God his desires. Remember the cross is what this whole thing is to be about. The inner turmoil in Jesus, he's conflicted between his desire to be faithful to God's calling in his life and his desire to not get beat up, mocked, stripped, naked, and killed. Anyone else ever feel that tension at all? Right? This is because our emotions are the result of the byproduct of our desires. We all know that. So we worry about them and then we get sad or we get excited about the stuff that we desire, the stuff that we want. And if we don't desire it, we don't want, like, to bring any of that up, basically, before God. If you're like me, you filter your desires. You filter them when it comes to bringing anything before God. Stuff I know God will be stoked on, I will bring before God. I would like, I made a list. I would like sanctuary to thrive. I'd like it to be healthy. I'd like it to grow in all the right kinds of ways, not just numerically. Like, people are growing. People are engaging the injustice of our city. People are, are, are learning to love well, experiencing healing. 
demonstrating and announcing the good news that heaven is coming. I would just, I want it to thrive and grow. I want to be, I can pray that prayer and be pretty okay with it. I don't filter that out. I want to become a better husband. I want to be the world's greatest dad. I don't think God's like, that's a bad desire. I, I pray that. I want my children to grow up and know, fill in the blank. I take the desires that I know are good and I give those to God. God, please do this because I know it has your stamp of approval on that. I do not give God, I would like to cuss that person out right now. God, I would like, I am aware that I would like to cuss that person out right now. No, I actually have already like thought about it, gotten anxious about it, probably processed it really immature in an immature fashion in a bad way. And then I bring it before God when now I'm ready to repent of even wanting to do that in the first place. Because he's, the desires that I know are evil, I take those and I don't really know what to do with them, so I filter them out. And then I have all these, if you're like me, all these ambiguous desires, these desires that are in the middle. I don't know what to do with that are convoluted. I'm not sure if they're from Jesus. I'm not sure what to do with them. And with Jesus, there's no filter. He just says, I don't want to do this. Yeah, is there another way? And he gives God his desires, even the ones that aren't good. Do you know what sort of paradigm shift This simple little point that we see in Jesus' life could be for you. What if you were to bring God into all of your desires? If you're at the gym, you see that person that you're maybe remotely attracted to. They're size medium, but they're wearing a size small. Ever have those moments? No? Track with me. Give me some sort of, no, don't amen that. You look a little long. Maybe your, your temptation is to go, I'm going to flirt with them. Ah, oh, it's going to take a conversation. They seem really nice. No, it's nothing to do with that. Show that down. What would it look like to bring God into that moment and into that kind of desire? God, I really want to lust after this woman right now, God. It's late and I'm really tired and I'd really like to download that right now. I had an incredibly bad day and I'd really love to just, we don't do this consciously, right? Like I just would like to take that out of my wife, frankly. Didn't wash the dish the exact way that I wanted her to wash the dish. And so now I'm somehow yelling. But really, this is about everything that went wrong today. Am I preaching to anybody or is this just me? Okay, great. What would it look like, rather than to hide from God in that moment, to bring, in, bring him into all that is evil and broken and messed up? Maybe you're single and you're lonely and you want to get married so badly. Maybe you're married and you want to get divorced so badly. Like, you're just, you're done. Like, we were young, and I didn't understand it, and I tried my hardest, and it was really, like, I'm just over it. Yeah, you may want to bring God into that. Maybe somebody hurt you a week ago or 30 years ago. A friend, a dad, a mom, an ex-spouse, fiance. And you just want justice, and you want retribution, and you want vengeance. But you know that's not a good thought, and so you don't bring it before God. Like, I have enough wherewithal to know that's bad. I probably shouldn't want that. Yeah, of course, I guess I should maybe, but. And we minimize the idea that bringing it before God would do anything at all. What would it look like to bring God into your hatred and bring God into your hurt? To bring God into size small on a size medium. Bring to God your jealousy. It's ugly, so you don't want to face it. So what are you going to do bringing it before God? As if God will somehow be like, oh, I didn't know about that. Shouldn't have told me. (laughs) I know that's silly and no one thinks that, but I feel like that's sometimes below the surface. As if God doesn't know already. This is what I see in Jesus. He gives God his feelings. He gives God his desires and there's no filter. He let God take your desires that are good and say yes and slowly and surely he bring, bring, brings about birth and new life. Number three, Jesus gives God his uh, trust. He gives God his feelings. He gives God his desires. And finally, if you're taking notes, he gives God his trust. There's the iconic line, not as I will, but as you will. He says it again in verse 42. It's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. The fact is that Jesus' deepest desire underneath all the other desires is that he wants God's will to be done. Remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, your strongest, well, if you're anybody, your strongest desire and your deepest desire aren't all the same. You with me? I'm going to fall. Your strongest desire and your deepest desire are not necessarily the same. 
My strongest desire in the gym as I'm working out is to just know the way of Jesus. Like deep down. Like, my, like I got all sorts of stacked desires. Like I want to I wanna look as good as John Shuchuk. All right. I want to like, I'm going to share these extra pounds. I want to like, I got all these other desires. But then I got, but his spouse is just leaving. Uh, <laughs> I... I I want all these desires, but below all of them, I'm a follower of Jesus. Many of you are. I want what? I want, to, I want to live the life of heaven. I want to love and be loved. I want to be blessing to the world. I want to be a follower of Jesus. That's my ultimate desire. My strongest desire? Hey, what's up, girl? My strongest desire in that moment is to indulge whatever it is. And so often for many of us, it is being aware of the fact that there is often a disconnect. Your deepest desire, if it's I want to know God and I want to know his presence. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a brand new heart and your deepest desire is God's will and this is in you. It's not something you have to work up. Even if it's underneath of a whole bunch of crud and so surrender is the place where your emotions start getting healthy. Surrender is the place of trust and obedience and abandonment. It's saying, okay, God, here's what I feel. Here's what I feel. Here's what I want, but have your way. But have whatever you want. It's recognizing in those moments, and it's amazing just the recall of that prayer, Lord, but not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. And the reset that that does. Surrender is that place of trust and obedience and abandonment. It's saying, okay, God, here's what I feel. Here's what I want. But I want what you want more than anything else. That is the beginning of emotional maturity and the beginning of emotional health. When you come to a place of release, and write that word down, surrender. Surrender, trust and obedience. So I invite the band up. We're going to take a moment as we close this morning. My prayer for the church, my prayer for us during this series, one of the many reasons why we, we felt like we needed to go into this, is that God would bring us as a church family to a place of emotional maturity and emotional health. That all the really intense, like... <laughs> Like realizing that God is there to meet us in this moment of surrender and in this moment of identifying what's really going on below the surface. The invitation today is basically for you to invite God into your deepest emotions, darkest emotions and feelings, and to meet him there. Because my question to posit to us is what if our feelings are places to meet with God? What if God is there waiting for us? What if, uh, what if as you map yourself onto whether it's Eastern or Western or secular, you kind of map somewhere on there? What if in that just one small moment of praying, search me and know my heart, like we shine a light on the, 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 the spaces I don't even want to go to? Even that prayer. God, I don't even know if there's anything underneath there. I don't know what to do with any of this. Will you open me up? Trust to trust. There's an opportunity in that to meet God, to meet with God. For some of us, we're, like I'm so excited. A lot of you are really young. And this is an opportunity for you. Maybe you haven't experienced a whole lot of emotional pain. There's not a whole lot there. Maybe you're just not even aware of it. You haven't even thought of it. You're like, college, I'm not supposed to talk about this yet. There's some disciplines that we're going to go through and learn throughout the course of this series in these connect groups that I'm just so excited about because I think it's going to set the tone, I, I believe, for a life that's going to be so much more aware of what's really happening in our hearts. And it's really hard to invite God into spaces, into our lives, and to transform us when we're just so unaware of what's really happening, when we're not really even living our own life. And for many of us, we feel like we are too far gone, and we'll have a special club for you. We'll just drink tea in the corner and cry. You're welcome to join me. I'll be over there too. Two thoughts I have as we wrap up. To become a Christian, to be adopted into God's family, 
with the new name of Christian does not erase the past. God does not give us amnesia or do emergency, emotional, spiritual, reconstructive surgery. God does forgive the past, but he does not erase it. We are given a new start, but we still come in as babies drinking milk and are expected to die daily to the part of our lives that do not honor God and follow Jesus. So ignoring our emotions is, is essentially turning our backs on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. In neglecting our intense emotions, we are false to ourselves and lose out on an unbelievable opportunity to know God. We forget that change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability. So to begin, the call is for you to meet God in your emotions wherever they are. So I want to invite you before we come up and take communion and close our time, I want to invite you just put both feet on the floor if they're not already. If you've been taking notes, maybe put your notebook down. If there's a lot of exciting stuff happening on Instagram, maybe just Put the phone down just for a second. And put your hands out, palms open. Maybe you're here and you're in a place of emotional pain and you're just slugging it out. It's so rough right now. Maybe you're in this like zen-like place of just saying like, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Maybe you're in a lot of denial. You're just not dealing with it. Maybe there's been a lot of worship music and a lot of just telling yourself, yeah, but God's good, so I shouldn't feel this. Yeah, but God's good, so I shouldn't feel this. Yeah, but God's good, right? I shouldn't feel this. So for you, these emotions, even the really nasty ones, may they be places you meet God this morning. We're going to take a moment to lament. So two-thirds of the Psalms are lament. It's just basically just being honest. You get to bring God your feelings. This is how I feel. God, these are my desires, the good and the bad. So bring to God how you feel. Bring to God what you really want, even if you, you know it's not the thing you should want, but it is what you want, and be honest. And maybe this morning you could even begin to bring God your trust. God, but not my will, but yours. Hear the words of the psalmist this morning. Search me, know my heart. Guide me, know my anxious thoughts reveal the sin in me and lead me in the way everlasting.